This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by, well, good question who. You frequently hear ads right here from Verso, University of California Press, and N Plus One. We are now looking for new publishers to advertise with us. Do you write or work for a magazine or book publisher? If you do, can you think of any group of people more interested in buying smart left-wing books and magazines than Dig listeners? Because, well, I sure can't. If you want to advertise your media product on The Dig, email me at firstnamelastname at gmail.com. That's danieldenver at gmail.com. That is also, incidentally, where you may send me listener letters, which, as long as they are not intensely mean, I always do my best to respond to. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. For much of the 20th century, Cold War politics defined socialism as the antithesis of democracy. The liberal Cold War order, sensitive to international embarrassment, did make room for civil rights gains. But it also marginalized radical politics at home, violently intervened across the globe to crush the aspirations of decolonizing peoples, and laid the so-called colorblind building blocks of mass incarceration and the war on immigrants. Today, an insurgent democratic socialist movement is transforming U.S. politics. Today, it is socialism that is at the forefront of a fight for a radical deepening of democracy, one in which ordinary people exercise control over our political, economic, and social lives, and one in which the people is expansively defined to include those excluded by racist immigration law and mass incarceration. This, generally speaking, is what I'm discussing today with filmmaker and writer Astra Taylor. My request for your support today is a brief one, but in short, this podcast only exists and can only be made free to all because those of you listeners listening right now who can afford to support us do so at patreon.com slash the dig. Also, I receive an email every time you donate, and your donations will make me feel good about myself while I toil in the depths of final book editing hell. Please contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Astra Taylor, a filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. Her most recent documentary, what is Democracy, is now streaming, and her latest book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, was published in May. Astra Taylor, welcome back to The Dig. Cool. Thanks for having me. So, democracy being in crisis has become this very popular thing to fret about, including very much amongst establishment figures who never really seem to care that much for self-government in the first place. And you write that, unsurprisingly, then a lot of these people are actually concerned with defending liberalism, in part by protecting liberalism from democracy. To start things off, define democracy and define liberalism and Explain this rapidly changing relationship between these two things that were long seen as more or less synonymous, but now not so much. That's a big question. How do you define democracy and how do you define <laughs> liberalism, right? It's a trick question. I mean, books and books and books have been written on this topic. I, Including one I by mean, you, and I wrote my own book, right? I wrote my own book on, on democracy and how complicated it is. But, you know, there are two definitions I kind of like to go back to, and, and they both actually go back to the to the ancient Greek. And you know, of course, the Greeks didn't invent democracy as a practice, but they gave us the word. And, and I think it's a pretty great word. So it's the demos, the people have power or rule, so kratos. And so it's basically this idea of the people 
ruling, the people governing themselves. And then Aristotle, you know, observed that democracy is rule of the poor because the poor mathematically outnumber the rich, right? And so, you know, I think those are those are two useful definitions. Liberalism is even harder to define. I mean, because it's it's contested. And, you know, there's a tradition of liberalism that relates to a kind of um, uh, almost like a, a generosity, uh, this tradition of what we associate with, you know, people being liberal, having sort of open liberal values or whatever. And then there's another tradition that associates liberalism with free markets, with liberalized economies. Uh, but typically when people talk about the tension between democracy and liberalism, what they're saying is, okay, democracy is rule of the people, but that can devolve into majority rule. So liberalism is associated with certain constraints on democracy. So constitutional rights, which tend to be sort of negative, like where the state can't intrude. Um, so constitutional rights, elections, the sorts of rules of the game that constrain democracy and stop it from going off the rails. And, you know, these, you know, in, in mainstream tradition of political thinking, political science, political philosophy, these two things are, you know, it's said over and over that these two things are intention, that like liberalism and democracy aren't the same thing. And, you know, one is prone to be over the top and one has to rule the, uh, rein, rein the other in. Um, and so liberals are, you know, they tend to be concerned. They, they're concerned about the demos. You write that the that the word democracy for for a long time was sort of a banality, like something that was maybe defined as whatever it is that America is doing, or just merely the the peaceful transfer of power, or say a, a thin pretext for invading Iraq. But but now you write that it represents a threat. Yeah, yeah. What? what why is that? Well, I mean, you know. I would have been very surprised if you had said 10 years ago that I was going to write an entire book on democracy because I thought democracy was a really boring, sold out, hollow word. And I think this has to do with coming of age in the aughts and it was the the period when, you know, yeah, the U.S. was bringing democracy to the Middle East through warfare, you know, whether people wanted it or not. And there was, there's this sense, at least, you know, I felt that democracy wasn't the sort of value worth fighting for. So other words spoke to me much more profoundly, like freedom and equality and liberation and socialism. Um, but I think, you know, something changed for me around 2011. So with the Occupy period, when, when there were movements around the world, you know, calling for real democracy. And, you know, and we've undergone yet another shift, which, you know, is a sort of post-2016 shift where now it's said, okay, our democracy is in crisis. The problem <laughs> with it, it, but I think you, you hit the nail on the head in that there's something sort of odd about this moment because the very people who are saying democracy is in crisis now because Donald Trump's in office and, you know, he is a crisis for the whole fucking world, were people who, you know, were not out there after the banks got bailed out, you know, questioning what was wrong with our political system. So I think there's, there's a, we're in this weird moment where the liberal establishment is both wants to champion democracy, right? So they want to like take our democracy back or restore our democracy, address this supposed crisis of democracy. But again, they have that liberal wariness of the people <laughs> and of self-government, which is why there's also all this talk about. And populism. so they want to restore democracy to, to liberalism. Yeah, they want to restore. I mean, they sort of want to turn back the clock to just, you know, before Donald Trump was elected and, you know, put some trustworthy technocrats in charge. And and, you know, so it's this is why we have to fight over the word democracy. Like, you know, democracy is this it, it is this this vague concept of the people ruling and who the people are and how they rule is up for debate. And so, you know, they they're they're offering their definition of the term. And I think we have to fight for a way more robust robust and meaningful definition. I've long thought since Trump was elected that this sort of bipartisan alliance of of Trump resistors who, you know, bring together war criminals and in, entitlement reformers to protect democracy against populism, I always thought that it was sort of representative of almost no one. And, and on a policy level, I, I still think that's true. 
But the strong polling for Joe Biden makes me think that this milieu's mood, if not their policies, their mood of, of promising a return to some bygone era of, of bipartisan normalcy, it does seem to hold some appeal amongst at least some liberals. Yeah, I mean, I think it 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 is appealing. I mean, you know, and I'm someone who's like, who the hell likes Joe Biden? Like, I don't know. <laughs> and I was, but I also come, come from a weird family. Like, I was home with my parents in North Carolina the other day. My mom was like, who the fuck likes Joe Biden? I was like, right on, mom. Um, but you know, I think this is, you know, so one thing I I felt when I was making so the book Democracy May Not Exist came out of uh, my film What Is Democracy. So I went around and I asked a lot of people on the street, you know, what is democracy? What does it mean to you? And people did not have very profound or personal answers to the question. People were pretty stumped initially until I started digging and approaching it from different, different angles. You know, and typically what they said, okay, democracy is elections. Like we, we have the right to vote and there are elections, therefore we live in a democracy. And so there, and you know, elections, what they do is we vote for people to represent us and then they they engage in government. So it isn't the people ruling, right? We have people do it by proxy. And I mean, people people are accustomed to that, that the reason I, by the end of it, I felt like, okay, the reason people don't have more interesting definitions of democracy is because it's just not something that they do very much of. And so I guess it's not surprising that this kind of technocratic government appeals to people, right? Like just let's put some some grown-ups in charge and let them let them handle things. And this is my the even the phrase like I have a plan for that is starting to grate on me a little bit as as much as I prefer Elizabeth Warren to Joe Biden, for example. It's so it's so, <laughs> it's technocratic. so technocratic. It was actually just driving me nuts this morning and last night. Yeah. So I think that that is why that, you know, that's also it's not just Biden, but that's part of her appeal, I think, is that it's like put a put a grown up in charge and she's got a plan and it's it's not um about empowering the people and i think elizabeth warren does fight for working class people i mean i think she's a lot more than the majority of other candidates but that whole i think the reason that phrase is so popular actually is because it's this idea that yeah someone else has it covered like there's part of warren that has the Buttigieg appeal, but with but she actually does have the plans, yeah. unlike Buttigieg. But there's still <laughs> who doesn't who's like an empty suit. But there but there's still this problem with the appeal of of the plan as a standalone solution. Well, the problem has never been a lack of plans or good ideas. It's a lack of power, and that's the problem for the left. Is that it, it's we, we've had lots of good ideas. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> people have been criticizing. Um, you know, neoliberalism and saying what the alternative should be for as long as I can remember, even even when there weren't robust social movements, but the left didn't have power to implement them. And so that's, that's, you know, where you get into this, you know, the difference between also, I think, liberalism and democracy, because it's like, you know, empowering, not just protecting people from this, from the state, right, constraining the state, constraining the people from their excesses, but actually empowering people so that they can fight for reforms so that they can enact plans that would make their lives better. So liberalism is is fundamentally about restraints. And in my opinion, there should no doubt be constraints on, on state power, including state power directed by a majority public when it comes to protecting free expression, religious minorities, whatnot. But the question you ask, I think, is what exactly is liberalism constraining right now and for whose benefit? Yeah. And, that, you know, I, I, I frame things in that way. So in the piece for the, the New Republic, I frame things in that way because the brilliant historian and, and the guy is brilliant. Uh, Ira Katznelson said in a speech, you know, democracy advances liberalism uh, constraints. And the question is, well, constraints what? <laughs> you know, because if the premise, the sort of premise of liberalism is that you have these rights, these protections, these rules, and that they'll be respected. But, you know, rights alone cannot curb concentrated economic power. I mean, that's the reality we're living in. So we're, and this is where, you know, I I also make the observation that, you know, contrary to what a lot of liberals seem to think, you know, today's more radical lefties 
or people who would identify as democratic socialists aren't aren't saying, hey, let's let's throw rights away. <laughs> They're saying, no, let's actually try to enact them by creating con- economic conditions where people can actually um, enjoy these rights and these freedoms that sound really great on paper, but we don't actually have them because power is so concentrated and they're being eroded. I mean, in the United States today, even something as simple as the right to vote is not equitably put into practice. <laughs> and so I think that's the that's the challenge to liberals. They're not facing adversaries who don't respect human rights, who don't respect constitutional principles, but who actually want to make them substantive, who want to advance them, who would perhaps like people to have not just individual rights, but collective or social rights, you know, rights to housing and education and clean water, you know, so to like take that project and take it to the next level. And, you know, right now we're failing under the economic system we have now, we're failing to even enjoy these sort of foundational precepts. In what sense would, in your opinion, would liberal institutions exist under socialism? And what might that look like? And and also, should we as socialists defend liberalism per se, or given the long history of socialists fighting for things like civil liberties vis-a-vis the state, are there liberal tenets that we can claim or even reclaim as properly socialist? There's part of me that just resists that, again, to go back to this this constant discourse, right? That there's a tension between liberalism and democracy, and therefore you can have really strange things like illiberal democracy <laughs> or or the inverse, <laughs> right? Like for me, you know, these two things are are historically connected. Uh, I'm even even if they might have different different genealogies. But again, those genealogies are contested, right? So so one of the found one of the organizers of the conference that I talk about in the New Republic piece just, you know, had published a a very, you know, interesting history of of liberalism. And her her, you know, view is like that, you know, economic liberals are just totally wrong. They've corrupted this this tradition that that's much more sort of generous and sympathetic to socialism. And it's just like, I don't really want to fight that battle. <laughs> like I guess I sort of decided, okay, the word democracy is a word worth fighting for <laughs> um, and trying to invest with meaning. You know, I do think that what we associate, what we call, you know, liberal rights or liberal institutions, be that sort of, you know, um independent judiciaries, I mean, are, are important, but there is a, there is a semantic wormhole that I'm like wary of, um, of falling into. Yeah. Falling Falling down down and never getting out of. Yeah. And it's sort of like, for me, you know, I think the point I wanted to make to the conference of liberals was that in order to actually embody the values you, you, you claim to revere, you know, we have to change the economic system and the agent of that transformation is going to be the people who you're so wary of in this pop, in the supposedly populist moment. <laughs> I think the wormholes perhaps particularly best to be avoided in in the US given that we have this sort of double m- meaning whereas in Europe you have like capital L liberalism and so someone like Emmanuel Macron is like the yes. iconic liberal in the U.S., the media defines Bernie right, Sanders, exactly. someone who's like as fundamentally opposed to Macron as possible as the from the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. So it's maybe like a irretrievably garbage word for Americans. <laughs> well, I think it's, you know, it's interesting if we're going to kind of like go back to the etymology of these words. So in Helena Rosenblatt's book on liberalism, she talks about its roots in Ro- Roman law and, and how it was kind of so there were, you know, there was this idea of, of course, liberal was tied to the free person, right? Not the enslaved person. And the free person was supposed to cultivate this generosity. So that's a word she returns to a lot as sort of a foundational value within the liberal tradition. And I think that struck me because I think that what you get then is a vision of a state that even if it's liberal, is generously taking care of the citizenry, as opposed to uh, so it's kind of like almost a charitable model as opposed to a political vision that's based on uh, solidarity, on being in it together, <laughs> on self-government, which so, so you know, that leads us. So there are competing visions of what the state, what the state is, who runs it and what it provides. And so the sort of stereotype of like American limousine liberals is actually somewhat in line with with this more capital L vision of liberalism. Right. And I would rather have it. I would rather have a generous state 
that you know provides a a floor for people than the mm-hmm. than one that doesn't. But I think as as socialists, as democratic socialists, we're actually fighting for a state that isn't just providing charitable services that are kind of removed. So then we become like benefit beneficiaries of welfare, but actually that we're engaged in running our workplaces, running our government in a, in a different way. A, a quick uh, aside before we, we move on to something that I've been, that I hear all the time on the internet and that you referenced um, in the introduction to your book and that I don't understand at all is, is what is up with the, the current right wing obsession with informing people on the left that sorry America is a republic and not a democracy like where does where does that come from okay if people just want to do start just want to do a, a test you can I would say just park yourself anywhere but Wall Street is a very good place to do this I've done it and just you know ask passers-by what's democracy what is democracy you know what I found was that there were often there's often like a kind of guy who's very eager you know he he was like, I have lots of opinions on this on this matter. And as I dug into questions and maybe got more complicated, they would just kind of shut down and be like, whatever, you know, actually, well, actually, this is not a democracy. It's a republic. Well, well actually. <laughs> um, and there are there's sort of the the know it all historian's response to this, which is like, well, actually, what the founding fathers meant by republic was a representative democracy. You know, so like shove it, (laughs) you know, you're you're there's there's there isn't this sort of like firewall between a republic and a democracy. People are invoking it, though, because it gives a historical justification in their mind to disempowering people. Right. Specifically disempowering people who they don't like and who they feel threatened by. So. I also, so it's like uh, it's like in style for like the left to for obvious reasons to point out the structurally undemocratic features of things like our constitution, the U.S. Senate, the uh, the electoral college, et cetera. And this is sort of a way to say yes, and that's precisely how it was meant exactly. to be. Exactly. And it's good. Right. Yes. And I have a historical rationale for this. It's completely legitimate. It's, you know, I'm 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 interpreting the structures of our political system with you know fidelity to how the founders who were these geniuses right how they intended things to be and i i think this is interesting because a it's incredibly common i mean it just happens uh it happened all the time and i encountered it from these you know grown men i spoke to on wall street but also from young republicans so college students that i spoke to who are trump supporters and i think this is the point that i sometimes just you know I'm maybe at risk of just repeating myself because I I say this a lot, but this is why another reason why I find the liberal emphasis on this moment as populist is is potentially misleading, right? So there's another, you know, common refrain at the conference that I talk about in the New Republic piece was like, okay, this sort of populism on the left and populism on the right. And, you know, in 2016, people, you know, made this equivalency between Bernie Sanders, you know, social democratic socialist pluralism with Donald Trump's like ethno nativism, which I find to be totally false, but it basically reflected their fear of the demos, right? Fear of the people and and an argument for mitigating. It, it says a lot about them yes. that they conflate the it two. It says a lot about them. But this idea was that, you know, there's it's sort of, you know, this classic trope of democracy that there's unruly passions and that people will will um make terrible mistakes and destroy the system. So it goes all the way back to Plato's warnings in the Republic, right? And so, but I, I, what I found when I actually spoke to people who were Trump supporters, especially, you know, very dedicated conservatives. So, you know, kids who were college Republicans or very politically active on the right was that they didn't dress their arguments up in populist rhetoric at all. There, there was none of that sort of, we're the silent majority who's suffering. There was much more of a self-conscious minority politics. So a lot of love for the Electoral College, a lot of love for the Senate, a lot of disgust at urban centers as being population heavy and having liberal values. And so, you know, what this also means is that you can't make democratic appeals to these people, right? You can't say, 
oh, you know, the democratic nature of America is so valuable. Let's, you know, salvage it together. Because they were just like, no, we don't like democracy because that would mean we know we're we know we're a minority. We know that the people ruling is a threat to our elite status. So they were and to it, us to us ruling. Yeah, to us ruling. So they were just they weren't populists, right? They were they were on the far right. <laughs> and in that sense they were going back to their like conservative roots. So again, it's this thing of like, yeah, the, this idea that's being invoked when people say, okay, we're a republic, not a democracy, is this idea of no minority minority rule is totally legitimate. And I'm going to it's benefit. A more, it's a more honest sort of conservatism, I suppose, to just embrace uh, the sorts of hierarchies and systems of domination that one is at the top of. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's kind of gloves off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, a related a related question that's really central to democracy, both both in theory and very much in practice, is who the people are. That can either be this radically exclusionary exercise like you're hearing from those young republicans or like we see just with nativism being at the absolute core of conservative politics and the trump presidency but it can also be expansionary as as we saw with occupy's famous slogan we are the 99 percent why is it that this question of, of defining who the people are why does it why is it emerged so powerfully in recent years and what do you make of this current conflict between these two very different answers to that question? Yeah. I mean, so I do think that there is in a way, this is, this is something that, you know, even as leftists, we have to acknowledge this is a problem with any political uh, system, right? I mean, any democratic community has to answer this question of like, okay, well, who is the people who's, who's making decisions, who's included, who's excluded and why, <laughs> and who, who is benefiting from those exclusions. And why has this emerged so strong at this moment? I mean, it's, it has been a constant theme, this question of inclusion and exclusion and who the people are. I mean, you're writing a book on, on immigration now. I mean, it goes right back, it goes to the beginning, to the to the founding of this country, right? You know, who's in, ebbs who's and out. flows, but it's always there. <laughs> yeah, it ebbs and flows, and it's always there. So I think it's flowing right now. I mean, a big part of it was probably the, you know, so-called refugee crisis in Europe. So you know, finally, I mean, there's a multiplicity of causes, but really, finally, this the consequences of all of the war, you know, all the wars in the Middle East, and so you know, people have been migrating in huge numbers, but once they reached European shores, that, you know, freaked, freaked the West out. And in moments of, and also, but closer to home, I think, you know, in moments of volatility, right? So you start to see the left rising and people naming certain enemies So 99% versus the 1%, naming the 1% as an enemy, naming problems like, you know, hold on, it's a, it, the financial sector, you know, caused this economic crisis. Well, then the right, what does the right want to do? They want to deflect. They want people to have other, you know, other, other types of reasoning. They want people to blame the folks at the bottom, not the folks at the top. And so that is a strategy that we saw, you know, we, we, we saw that as a logic right after the banking crisis with the Tea Party, that was like, you know, who's responsible for it? the mortgage meltdown? Certainly not the bankers. <laughs> it must be all those irresponsible, you know, poor people in Baltimore who took out mortgages they couldn't afford. So I think there's, it's, it's, you know, it has to do with the sort of economic crisis that we're in. And I think that just to pause you really quick, that's, I think that's a really good, important point to make, which is that obviously nativism and xenophobia, anti-immigrant politics is is the most overt way that people are included or excluded from the people, the demos. But there are all these other ways that that happens too, like in terms of like who is a legitimate beneficiary of government support and who is an illegitimate one, who is the person who is receiving the mortgage interest deduction that they don't even understand is like basically a form of welfare and who is the person that Rick Santelli is demonizing in his rant heard around the world who, you know, took on a loan he couldn't afford to build a house or whatever. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, like inclusion, this question of inclusion and exclusion is not always so hard edged as like citizenship, right? Because it, it also, even within the citizenry, there's so many inequities. And one of 
a concept I mentioned just briefly in the book is is this idea of predatory inclusion, you know, which, which is the way in which the system sometimes adapts to demands for, you know, full access. And then it's like, okay, yes, you can be included, but we'll include you in these financial structures at predatory terms <laughs> or in ways that, you know, exploit you also bringing you in. So, but I think, you know, what- Melinda, Melinda Cooper's book talks a lot about that in terms of like finance, the democratization of finance. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, so it's like access, access on what on what terms i mean in the you know i don't really get into this issue so much in in the piece but in the in the book democracy may not exist but we'll miss it when it's gone a chapter is about this and about the question of inclusion and exclusion because i think it is a thorny question that we have to think we have to wrestle with right now so many exclusions are predicated on the fact that that excluded populations are easier to exploit Right. It's easier to exploit people who don't have full citizenship, who are vulnerable to deportation, uh, who don't have right. rights, you know, who don't have those liberal rights that come with citizenship. Um, but I, I think that that doesn't mean that all exclusions are always terrible. So like all, all boundaries aren't borders, <laughs> you know, like there's there's still this question that that well, who's included in a specific decision making and process and when is it ethical to exclude people from from something right you know and then there are all sorts of cases where people don't want to be included you know where they're like I don't want to be part of your state I don't want to be part of your nation I don't want to be colonized <laughs> so you know inclusion is not always yeah a sort of simple virtuous virtuous thing and so my goal in the book is just for us to sort of think these power problems through more because I think as human beings, you know, we can't make decisions at the scale of every human being on earth of eight, 8 billion individuals. We're going to have to have communities. And, you know, I think also the left has valorized rightly some degree of local control and participatory democracy, right? That you should have a say over the decisions that affect your life. So that kind of implies that some people would be excluded, but right now our exclusions are, you know, just they're predicated on horrible things like the idea of race, of, whether or not you have papers, you know, of sexual orientation, right? Like we have these terrible kinds of exclusions and we live in such an unequal world that it's almost difficult to imagine what what legitimate <laughs> exclusions or dem democracy enhancing boundaries would be. A related question for for socialists is the question of of society and it's not just a matter of who's in or who's out, but just not assuming that society is this ready-made, already existing thing. Margaret Thatcher, of course, was was wrong to say that there is no society, only individuals and families, but there's also n no unitary and ready-made society either. How do, how do you see that the society is simultaneously a solution and an ongoing problem to be solved for socialists? Yeah, well, we don't want to give any credit to Margaret Thatcher, that's for sure. Um, you know, I mean, because what, what did she wanted to break, break things down and say what, you know, her thing was, you know, only individuals and in the family, right? So she wanted to kind of reassert this patriarchal nuclear ideal, but I think it is a problem for the left that something like society just doesn't exist. I mean, because what, what is socialism? It's the idea that social power would reign as opposed to capitalism where capital reigns. So we know what that looks like because we're living it. But I think this the, the problem is that, you know, society, that the, the bonds of social life have to be, they have to be created. We have to generate them. That's not always easy, especially if we're operating under conditions that divide people and that encourage competition. And, you know, it, it totally brings up this question, of what scale does society exist on? I don't know. Is it small? Is it, is it national? But, you know, hold on, as, as socialists, we want to you know, transcend the nation state. So I think, you know, it's, it's. And socialism in one country is hard a, enough. Socialism in one city, given the mobility of capital would be. Yeah. Well, but, but also like, you know, socialism for the entire world then also has a kind of, well, A, we've never come close to achieving it, but it also kind of has an imperial right. ring to it because I mean, doesn't, there's a lot of diversity in human life and there should be, people should be experimenting with different ways of, of running things. So I, I mean, I, the society question is, you know, it's, it's just one of these, um, you know, in the piece in the New Republic and, and in the book, you know, I'm trying to remind us that, remind us of how complicated things are, which maybe this is why I'm like a bad propagandist, <laughs> you know, but it's like, we have to keep these complexities in mind. So we, you know, when we talk about 
socialism, you know, we don't, we're not clear. It's not the answer to the problems that ALS. It, it's it's actually something that generates new problems that we have to start thinking through. I quoted Michael Harrington, who says in his book, Socialism, he says that Marx, quote, assumed that society would take over direction of the economy from the capitalists. But the problem is there is no unitary subject of historic action called society. And so I think, you know, it, it is interesting to contrast that with Thatcher quote, because she was contented with that, right? She's like, there is no society. That's great. There's only atomized individuals and nuclear families, you know, fighting for themselves. But I think what it would it's actually a challenge for lefties because we know we're interdependent. We know we don't live in isolation and yet we still have to create that demos. We still have to create that unity. Um, you know, and that's why I say someone else somewhere else in the, in the piece, you know, socialists aren't born, they're made. <laughs> and that is, we have to create those social fabrics and, and reinvent, reinvent the ones we have. And like you mentioned earlier, we have to create them. And the challenges is that we have very little, understanding or experience of democracy, not only in terms of of how profoundly undemocratic our government is and in terms of our, you know, popular control over the state and electoral politics and all of that, but because we constantly live under systems of domination at the workplace, in the home, under the control of the carceral state, we have all of these it, it's not just an an ideas problem like we have, and this kind of goes back to the problem the discussion we're having about war and having a plan for everything it's not just it's not just an ideas problem it's a material reality and how we exist under it problem yeah and i think the thing is you know there you know our social lives are really complicated so there's elements of competition and elements of cooperation and elements of individualism and elements of collectivity right. and the the question is also one of well where do we put the where do we put the emphasis? And so I think we can, you know, in, in the piece, for example, I talk about how, you know, and this is a common observation among leftists, but there, there are aspects of something that looks like at least social democracy, maybe even socialism in our, in our government, right? There are all sorts of subsidies, all sorts of ways that risks are socialized, they just tend to disproportionately benefit wealthy people and white people, <laughs> you know. And that, that rhetorically is precisely what Medicare for All is doing. You know, it's like, oh, you know this, like, socialist thing that the government does called Medicare that you've heard good things about? Well, let's do that for everyone. Exactly. <laughs> right. Like, let's, let's, bring, let's bring it out into the open and do it for everyone. And so I think there are also elements, you know, we, we are kind of trained to see our competitive aspects in our day-to-day -day lives or our, our individual our, our individualism and not necessarily to put emphasis on the ways in which we do act, you know, with social impulses and the way we do help our neighbors and, and take care of each other every day. So it's like, it's, it's, it's also this aspect, this question was, well, what, you know, what actually gets named and valorized in the world we're living in and how can we shift the emphasis? And, and the, you write quote, socialists aren't born, but made. Mm -hmm. And the left's capacity for outreach is profoundly limited. <laughs> so the, 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 how, how do we, we go about, to put it rather bombastically, making new kinds of, of humans that can not only fight for and build socialism, but actually maintain it? Because the same, the same crisis of, of neoliberalism that allowed, you know, it's the crisis of neoliberalism that allowed for this socialist revival, but we all still live in a society made by neoliberalism, and that's a society that's yeah. profoundly depoliticized. So so what's the answer? Is it sort of identifying these these spaces of cooperation and non-domination that already exist and building from there? I mean, I think it's, it's, it's an urgent challenge. So I, I said that line because I was down in St. Petersburg and I was talking to some local activists and just asking them what the mood of the community was. And they they basically said, yeah, you know, there's a lot of agitation, a lot of discontent, but it could go both ways, right? So in other words, it could be funneled to, you know, a Trump style politics or a kind of Sanders style, right? The, in, people people are frustrated but what happens with that frustration or discontent depends on who gets to them first and you know what structures are being offered and you know i think the left right now has a big opportunity but it's it's kind of our opportunity to lose and i think this this relates to i think why we're both 
cluing into this tendency to valorize the person with the plan because what you it's clear it just sort of is like one piece of evidence of how ingrained it is for people to look for someone else to um, solve their problems instead of engaging in you know a more sort of grassroots style of organizing or political engagement I mean I think what what the left has to do is is organize and to try to yeah engage with people about their political problems and develop a sort of deeper political analysis. So there's a real difference, I think, between liking Bernie Sanders and being a democratic socialist. I'm not sure what the magic (laughs) thing we have to do is to get people to actually shift over. I mentioned in the piece, you know, one thing that alarmed me was that so many, for so many people, at least according to polls, a lot of people who say they like Bernie Sanders and he's their first candidate, their, their number two is Joe Biden. Right. And I think vice versa. In many cases. Yeah, which kind of which is just like, OK, this is not ideologically coherent. And I think that that's because it takes it takes time to make people it takes time to for for people to to come to different political views. I mean, it took it's taken me time. My my experience, my perception shifts based on my experience and what kind of movement I mean, I'm involved in. I mean, in, in the film, in the book, I go back to Rousseau's paradox, the one of the founding sort of it's called the founding paradox, but it's this central idea in political philosophy. And it's basically, you know, what comes first, like democracy or a democratic people, because you seem to need people oriented towards democracy in order to create the structures. And so it's this, you know, chicken or the egg kind of dilemma. And the thing is, there's not, there's no, you know, his, his proposal was, oh, some enlightened guy, some, you know, is going to just like legislate all of our problems away. (laughs) And then once we have these rules, people will just be Democrats or be able to finally live a good life. But we, you know, there's no trick. I mean, we just have to have to do the hard work of, of talking to people, organizing them, and you know, convincing them that there's another way of of organizing society. And so that that's the elections. You know, this sort of emphasis on electoral politics is an opportunity to have those big questions. But if we leave it at the if we leave it at the, ele- the level of elections and candidates, we're going to be in trouble. Yeah, you, you you write that something that's been really good for the recent growth of socialism in the U.S. is also a big problem, which is that it has very much benefited by Fox News and companies just long-running constant demonization of even neoliberal liberalism as socialism because it's helped define socialism as everything to the left of neoliberalism or everything that's not like evil people on Fox News. And, And so that's been to the benefit of the left, but it's pretty squishy, too. How do you see this sort of undefined relationship between socialism as an anti-capitalist politics and this more general and diffuse anti-neoliberal social democratic politics, which we see from politicians that I care a lot for, like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but that are not I mean, to my eyes, at least, anti-capitalist. Well, I mean, you're kind of, so you, you've kind of brought up three things. One is the Fox News version of socialism, which is just anything, <laughs> anything remotely liberal. like Anything, anything cool. Yeah. Healthcare, <laughs> vacations, uh, you All know, um, having fun. And, and I think that their approach has backfired, right? I mean, if you tell people who are struggling to make ends meet that, being able to go see a doctor or take a vacation is socialism. Socialism is inevitably going to start sounding pretty good, right? So, but that that the problem is that that's that's a shift of consciousness that the left can't take a lot of credit for. Again, this is a moment of opportunity. You know, capitalism is creating conditions of deep inequity and frustration. You know, Fox News is is saying that even mild welfare reforms or environmental protections or like unbearable forms of socialist oppression. Yeah. And then there's, you know, and then into that mix, all these folks who are basically social Democrats have stepped in, but they're using the socialist word, which I think is ultimately a really great thing. And they're, they're, you know, and we shouldn't be too jaded because it's like AOC and Sanders. I mean, I wouldn't have ever, even, you know, in 2011, I would never have thought that they would, that figures like, um, 
them would I be know. dominating we, the people have people on the left have become so ungrateful so quickly it's like just try <laughs> to put yourself in your own shoes like like four years ago three years ago just think just like for a second <laughs> yeah and it's like you know, you know so let's let's have some perspective the, we want to multiply the force that they represent and we want to deepen the critique and you know bernie sanders i mean and and there have been some moves that are interesting like his plan that's sort of inspired by labor in the UK for inclusive ownership, right? Like, how do you actually yeah, start yeah. giving power to workers in the workplace uh, and, and building foundations for a more robust economic democracy, right? So taking democracy out of just the political sphere and into the economic sphere, not just through policies of redistribu- redistribution or a generous welfare state, but actually through collective ownership. So, I mean, I think there's, there's, I'm someone who's like, we have to take every reform and try to find the path that radicalizes it. And, you know, and basically like, you know, if you like taxing the rich, you're going to love owning your job. <laughs> you know, how do we, how do we build on this moment? Because yeah, it's, it, it's, it's certainly more than I expected. At the same time, I, I think it's, it's pretty fragile and, I, you know, it's just, it's hard. you like, right. You know, everybody's sharing right now that poll that just came out said four out of 40% of Americans are socialists and 55% of women aged, whatever it is, 18 to 55, or would prefer socialism to capitalism. But these, these things are kind of, you know, they can be fleeting. They can be something that's just in the air. And how do we, we know that the left only wins when it's actually organized and can actually engage in politics of, of refusal when it can actually, you know, stop the flows of capital when it can strike. I mean, we we might be at historically high levels of strikes for the 21st century, but compared to the New Deal era, it's like nothing. You know, so we have to we have to recognize that these are just indicators that we should organize more and and yeah, we're like approaching like what might add up to the necessary conditions, but nowhere near the sufficient the sufficient outcome that we're looking for. You have a um, sobering line in, in your new Republic piece. in your new Republic piece, read any article in the left press aimed at, at rousing the socialist faithful. And chances are the final paragraph concludes with some variation of we have a world to win, but in my more cynical and or anxious moments, I'm tempted to say the opposite. The left has a world to lose or rather a promising shift in the political winds to squander or blow. The largest challenge ahead is to move socialism from the fringe to the center of political life and turn people into committed democratic socialists. Yeah. And, you know, I just to further darken the mood, but, you know, I think the thing is even looking, one of the things that I'm most heartened by is the renewed enthusiasm for labor organizing and the attention to union politics. But unions are, unfortunately, you know, they're not just a vehicle for social change. They're also, they, they also need to be terrain for democratic struggle because a lot of them are run in a way where, you know, they're, they're sort of run in a, in a way that's akin to private management structures, right? They're very hierarchical. Workers aren't, aren't necessarily empowered. There's an emphasis on kind of superficial media campaigns instead of a more holistic view of organizing. So, I mean, we, there's so much work that needs to be done. And and this is a very, it's a promising moment in that there's a kind of volatility, but we also have to get really serious about what, what the challenges and what the stakes are. Yeah. I want to talk to you about the sort of how to feel and approach that, that volatility. You argue that while the, the destruction and change wrought by global warming in particular is terrifying, it also forces us to discard any notion that the system as it is, is unchangeable because things are are indeed changing. You write, quote, the world is changing, whether we like it or not. And as we face that crucial fact, we might as well try to change it for the better by fighting to ensure that more of us have a chance to enjoy the blessings that liberal democracy promised but also by refusing to abandon the possibility that even more satisfying, sustainable, and dignified forms of life might lie ahead. 
Donna Haraway has this phrase, staying with the trouble. How do you how do you think about this profoundly chaotic and undetermined unknowability of the future? How do you simultaneously deal with what's really terrifying about that and also embrace it as an opportunity that motivates you to take action? I think the simple answer is that we just have no other choice. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the path that we're on is, if we don't intervene, is so bleak. I mean, if we think, if we're devastated by what we see at the borders now, by you know, people drowning in the Mediterranean, then you know, just wait until the climate crisis is going full tilt. So I think there's just a sense of there is no alternative to fighting against the world that seems to be on the on the horizon. The staying with the trouble thing, though, speaks to me. Um, and the whole point of of the book, which I I summarize a little bit at the end of the New Republic piece, but the whole point of this book, democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone, is that you know, we have to get comfortable with these challenges, philosophical and political challenges, and get comfortable with uncertainty. So you know, the book, in a way, is an argument with this idea that it's a sort of argument with utopian socialism in a way, right? This I you know, Marx, I, I quote Marx in in the New Republic essay saying, you know, communism is the riddle of history solved, right? This idea that there's a promised land that lays ahead. That there's an end of history. That that's what an utopia end of history, is. You're right, an end of politics. Yeah, and into politics, exactly, and that you know we, we won't be alienated. I mean, maybe I just think alienation is just, you know, I think we could get over uh, the alienated labor <laughs> and, and capitalist exploitation, but I still think we'll have all sorts of problems. And so each chapter of the book is about the way a problem— Your relationship will... to your mother and your girlfriend will not automatically <laughs> become perfect <laughs> under socialism. Might be better, might be better without all the— horrific systematic stress being put on your private life but <laughs> yeah or maybe like without that systematic stress you'd actually have to face your shit and it would actually be more painful i you know we yeah. don't know because we're not living in it right <laughs> um there might be a, a reason that people flee from themselves but so the, each chapter of the book is about a tension or a dichotomy that i think will persist right even even in conditions of economic egalitarianism like, again, we'll have to wrestle with the question of inclusion and exclusion. We'll have to wrestle with how to balance the needs of people who live now with people in the future, right? So you can imagine, so somehow we'll have to think as we create this democratic socialist world, you know, that's supposedly ecologically sustainable. We'll have to think about people who don't exist yet. Um, we'll always have to balance our local communities with the fact we live in a, a global world. So, you know, I think... I think staying with the trouble is something that we, you know, we have to incorporate into our political thought and our, our political praxis while also trying to be pragmatic and also being like, okay, well, you know, there is no utopia for us to just leap into. So, you know, what are the levers of levers of change in the here and now? What are the messy struggles I can get involved in? So, for me, the fact that we're facing change doesn't, I mean, it distresses me. It distresses me when I, when I think about the, you know, ramifications of climate change, but it's also like, you know, change is a constant. And so we, we have to intervene. What I was responding to uh, in the piece specifically was going to this conference, talking to, you know, more establishment liberal types you know, and people who really just wanted to engage in the sort of politics of what they saw as the status quo, get rid of these sort of recent aberrations, get rid of Trump, restore the norms. <laughs> and, you know, it's partly just to remind them, like, you know, we're not, that's a fantasy. It's not going to happen, right? Big change is coming. And, you know, let's try to, let's, let's try to make it good. I, I love this uh, line from Mark Platner who's at this conference from you, he's the co-editor of the Journal of Democracy. And he said, in either response to you or Natasha Leonard, I'm not sure, so socialism doesn't strike me as a, as a new idea, nor a promising idea. I'm not used to hearing arguments that question the worth of liberal democracy. Like there's just sort of this, like from the right, you get 
sort of red baiting that's not sticking, but from the liberal establishment, just sort of befuddlement? <laughs> yeah, it was really, they were really befuddled. And that was interesting because it also, it also showed me that I'm in a bubble, right? Like to me, yeah. I couldn't imagine what it'd be like to be so inside the beltway or ensconced in some ivory tower that I don't hear criticisms of liberal democracy from the left. Um, but it turns out there's lots of people who live that way. And it was really striking. And so what their, their only framework for conversations about democratic socialism were very, you know, nostalgic Cold War era frameworks. And I think we're in a, such a different political moment because I, as I say in the piece, I, you know, I think part of why the idea of democratic socialism has gone on with such force is that it's basically a synonym for a future, right? Because right. people have a sense that, you know, the the present cannot continue as it is. So it's it's not, these ideas might be old, they might be, be you know, timeless, like, yeah, we didn't invent the idea of solidarity last week. It's not novel in that sense, but it hardly feels like it's tired out and that we've already done it because we haven't. The answer to the question of the radicalization of of millennials and so-called Gen Zers, who I think are actually just really millennials too, but that's another discussion entirely, is really, you know, first the the financial crisis and its aftermath. And then global warming and the dawning realization of what that not only will mean in the future, but is meaning already. And it's hard to think of a more profound indictment of the status quo than its utter inability to do any of the things that science tells us is necessary to avert climate catastrophe. And that, I think, is a big part of why for for young people, Socialism might not be a clearly articulated ideology or plan, but it does, as you write, feel like having a future, like the only option for a future. Yeah, because if, if liberal democracy is what brought us has is what's brought us to the brink of species collapse and insect apocalypse and, you know, billions of climate refugees, then, you know, we we obviously need need to shift course. And but I also think there's something less extreme than that. It's that, you know. It took the arrival of an ostensibly democratic socialist congresswoman to bring to the table a vision of a Green New Deal that just begins to meet the threshold of what's necessary, right? right? So, you know, going beyond even ideas of like green jobs or the sort of neoliberal, you know, market fixes of like carbon taxes and stuff. But it took someone who, you know, self consciously rejects the liberal label to just begin to propose a plan, <laughs> um, a plan that like meets, meets the challenge of our time, you know, and now I think it's up for the rest of us to find the power to back up the plan, which is again, a challenge. Yeah. Cause, uh, AOC is a great start, but we'll need a few hundred yeah. of her, uh, Astra Taylor. Thank you very much. Hey, I'm always here to bring a, bring a cheery ray of light. Astra Taylor is a filmmaker, writer, and political organizer. Her most recent documentary, What is Democracy?, is now streaming, and her latest book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, was published in May. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that communism is the genuine resolution of the conflict between man and nature and between man and man, the true resolution of the strife between existence and essence, between objectification and self-confirmation, between freedom and necessity, between the individual and the species, communism is the riddle of history solved, and it knows itself to be this solution. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world, in various ways. Our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Julia Rock. Our senior advisor is Fiorio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's an iTunes or wherever, please leave us a nice review. 
Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does telling your friends, family, whoever, about the show. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this thing up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. 